Welcome to episode 2 of our series on travels of Ibn Battuta. In this episode, we'll look into his hometown of Tangier, Morocco and his early life and the conditions that drove Ibn Battuta to travel around the world. A Muslim physician, philosopher, historian, Arabic grammarian, traveler, and one of the most voluminous writers in the Near East of 11th century, Abd al-Latif al-Baghdadi, famously said, The learned man is esteemed in whatever place or condition he may be, always meeting people who are favorably disposed to him, who draw near to him and seek his company, gratified in being close to him. If you've not completed episode 1 of our series, we suggest you first get done with the previous episode. With that said, let's dive into today's episode. The white and blustery city of Tangier lies on the shoreline of Morocco at the southwestern finish of the Strait of Gibraltar where the cold surface momentum of the Atlantic streams into the channel, framing a waterway to the Mediterranean 45 miles away. Tangier was a uniting point of four geological universes, African and European, Atlantic and Mediterranean. It was a global town whose character was dictated by the moving progression of sea traffic in the waterway, dealers and champions, specialists and researchers moving to and fro between the columns or skimming under them between the sea and the ocean. Tangier was a frontier town in the mid-14th century. With rough Berber officers jaunting through the precarious roads to their warships, Christian and Muslim merchants shaking each other on the wharves and in the stockrooms, privateers discarding their loot in the marketplace. The city amidst the roisterous outskirts fervor of the occasions. Roosted on the Muslim world's western edge and, made up for a lost time in the changing examples of exchange and force in the Mediterranean, it was a more anxious and cosmopolitan city than it had ever been previously. It was such a spot where a young fellow may grow up and build up a desire to travel. The development of Christian vendors and mariners all through the town more likely than not involved customary event. Also, in typical occasions, these guests blended freely with the nearby Muslim populace to trade news and deal over costs. On account of Rila, the Book of Movements, we discovered that he was named Abu Abdallah Muhammad ibn Abdallah ibn Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Lawadi ibn Battuta on February 25, 1304, that his family was descended from the Berber clan known as the Lawada, that his mother and father were as yet alive when he left Morocco in 1325 and that a few individuals from his more distant family other than himself were educated in Islamic law and had sought after vocations as lawful researchers, faqis, or judges, qadis. Rila uncovers to us by suggestion, that he got the best instruction in law and the other Islamic sciences that Tangier could give. During his young adult years, he obtained an informed man's qualities and sensibilities, his family appreciated good remaining as individuals from the city's insightful first class. The schooling Ibn Battuta got was one deserving of an individual from a lawful family. It is sufficiently simple to envision the young man, anxious and approachable as he would be in grown-up life, walking off to Quranic school in the local mosque. Most boys' education would go no further than the Quranic training, plus perhaps a smattering of calligraphy, grammar, and arithmetic. But a lad of Ibn Battuta's family status would be encouraged to move on to the advanced study of the religious sciences, Quranic exegesis, the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, Hadith, grammar, rhetoric, theology, logic, and law. According to Ibn Khaldun, the great philosopher and historian of the later 14th century, memory training was even more rigorously pursued in Moroccan education than in other parts of the Muslim world. The motivation behind training in the Islamic middle period, it ought to be perceived, 
was not to instruct understudies to contemplate their human or indigenous habitat or to push the wildernesses of information past the restrictions of their elderly folks. But it was to send to the coming age the profound realities, virtues, and social guidelines of the past which, all things considered, Muslims had discovered substantial by the achievement of their faith and civilization. Although the discipline of memorization occupied much of a student's time, an Islamic education nonetheless addressed the whole man. In the course of his advanced studies, a boy was expected to acquire the values and manners of a gentleman. This included his everyday conversation in Arabic. A man of learning, unlike the ordinary citizen, was expected to know the subtle complexities of formal Arabic grammar, syntax, and poetics and to decorate his conversation with Quranic quotations classical allusions, and rhymed phrases. His life experience narrative reveals that he mastered the qualities of social polish expected of the sophisticated scholar and gentleman in his youth. As he grew into adulthood his speech, his manners, his conduct would identify him as an alim, a man of learning, and a member of the social category of educated men called the ulema. As his education advanced, he began to specialize in the law, as other members of his family had done. The study of law, in Arabic fiqh, was one of the fundamental religious sciences. In Islam, the sacred law, or sharia, was founded principally on the revealed Quran and the words and actions of the Prophet. Ideally, it was the basis not merely of religious practice but of the social order in its broadest expression. The sharia addressed the full spectrum of social relations, marriage, inheritance, taxation, market relations, moral behavior, and so on. Unlike the Christian world situation, where no formal distinction was made between canon and secular legal systems. Therefore, Ibn Battuta's juridical training was entirely integrated with his theological and literary education. In Sunni Islam, the general sets of laws grasped four significant schools of law, called madhabs. They were the Hanafi, the Shafi, the Maliki, and the Hanbali. The four schools varied in issues of juristic detail not in essential legitimate standards. The school to which an individual followed relied to a great extent upon where he had been conceived, since the Madhabs advanced during the early hundreds of years of Islam along regional lines. The Maliki school, named after its 8th century founder Malik ibn Anas, has been historically dominant throughout North Africa, as his introductory legal studies proceeded, he was also assimilating a Muslim lawyer's specific cultural style. The education and the juridical class's speech and manners were largely the same everywhere in the Muslim world. Therefore, Ibn Battuta's particular socialization was equipping him to move easily among men of learning anywhere in the Dar al-Islam. He also adopted the legal scholar's distinctive dress, a more or less voluminous turban, a talisan, or shawl-like garment draped over the head and shoulders, and a long, wide-sleeved, immaculately clean gown of fine material. Another important dimension of his education was his introduction to Sufism, the mystical dimension of Islam. When he left Tangier, he was so profoundly affected by Sufi thoughts, particularly faith and close to home Baraka and the estimation of parsimonious devotionalism, that his going profession ended up being, as it were, a great world visit through the hotels and burial places of well-known Sufi spiritualists and holy people. Though, it is not sure whether he was a Sufi disciple or not. In his childhood, he had probably got in contact with men of letters who went through Tangier at some time. The insightful class of the Islamic world was an exceptionally versatile gathering. 
In the Maghreb of the later middle period the learned, similar to present-day meeting bouncing scholastics, flowed ceaselessly starting with one city and country then on to the next, concentrating with famous teachers, driving political missions, taking up posts in mosques and illustrious chanceries. Scholars routinely shuttled back and forth across the Strait of Gibraltar between the cities of Morocco and the Nasrid Sultanate. Indeed, Ibn Battuta had a cousin who served as a cadi in the Andalusian city of Ronda. Single-direction relocation of taught individuals from Andalusia to North Africa because of the new flood of Christian force and associative loss of security and opportunity for Muslims on the waterway's northern side. Nonetheless, Iberia's misfortune was North Africa's benefit, since Andalusian researchers and specialists, showing up in irregular streams between the 13th and 15th hundreds of years, did a lot to breathe life into the social existence of Maribi towns. Anyway very much associated his family may be, no youthful researcher could hope to seek after a strict or public livelihood until he had attempted progressed concentrates with at any rate a couple of famous educators. The nearby bosses and visiting researchers of Tangier could give a kid a strong establishment in the significant orders. But for a young man like Ibn Battuta, it was not enough for him, therefore, he was already to begin his journey by this point. Thanks for watching episode 2 of series of travels of Ibn Battuta. In the next episode, we'll look upon his journey into North Africa.